I think everything starts from a fundamental understanding and agreement with the idea that housing is a human right. It's a human right because having a home is so central to living a life of dignity. Welcome to Ontario Lab, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs hosted by recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alexi White. And today we're going to discuss a topic of tremendous importance that has been on our to-do list for months, uh, and that topic is housing. Now, topic of housing and housing policy is so complex and multifaceted that after toying with a few options for a policy dive, we gave up trying to do justice to sort of a broad policy overview and sort of give you a sense of all of housing in one episode. We thought it would be best to start with a simple concept, and that concept is housing as a human right. We hear lots of politicians say it, but it doesn't really feel like right now we live in a society where housing is a human right. So much as a commodity and an increasingly expensive one at that. So to do this, we're going to sketch out all the stops along the housing policy continuum from emergency shelters to market housing ownership. We're going to ask what role various levels of government play along this continuum and what big things are going on right now, federally, provincially and locally right here in Toronto. We're going to touch on a few highlights of what we would be doing if we were actually serious about housing people and making housing a human right. So uh, to help us with all that, we've uh, invited friend of the pod, Alyssa Brierly, to join us today. Uh, Alyssa is the executive director and general counsel at the Center for Equality Rights in Accommodation. Uh, but we know her as a former colleague from her time in the Wynn government, where she provided political and policy advice to the Minister of Economic Development, Employment and Infrastructure, and the president of the Treasury Board, where uh, she and I were actually office neighbors for a few whirlwind months. So Alyssa, welcome to Ontario Lab. Thanks so much, guys. I'm so sorry. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I know what that's like. Feel your pain. Oh, please. <laughs> Ale- Alexi was a fantastic neighbor. It's true. Listeners of Ontario Loud know that uh, Alexi is a fantastic neighbor who will uh, takes care of lots of plants in his office, and it's it, it's it's a nice thing. So to start us off, Alyssa, tell us a little bit about CIRA and what it means to bring a human right lens to housing. Yeah, so CIRA is a nonprofit charity that has been around for just over 30 years, and it was created with an eye to advancing the right to housing and human rights in housing. And we do that in a few ways. Um, We provide services to renters who are facing eviction or human rights violation in their housing that could threaten their ability to stay housed. Uh, We provide advocacy and education programming to individuals, organizations, and service providers across Ontario uh, to teach them about their housing rights. And we work on advancing progressive housing policy. When we talk about people who face human rights issues in housing, discrimination from landlords, mm-hmm. who are who are you seeing most frequently? Like, who are the would you say the most precarious people in our society right now? It's it's a great question, and we we actually just did a an analysis of the folks who have been calling us over the last two years of our hotline, our telephone hotline. We are primarily hearing from women, uh, and we are primarily hearing from the women who are calling us are single women, often with kids. And uh, about 22% of the folks who call us are, are persons with disabilities. That, that's not necessarily a reflection of the problems that are out there, but those are the folks who are, are calling us. We tend to hear from people who have very complex challenges. They call us when they're facing eviction, for example. There's a lot of things that are going on in their life. Eviction is often one of the many things and one of the many challenges they're facing. And sometimes it's sort of the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. So one of the things that we often spend time doing is connecting them with other services that will help them with some of the other challenges that they're facing. In terms of the discrimination piece, 
the two biggest human rights grounds upon which we are hearing of discrimination are discrimination on account of race. Sorry, three, actually. Discrimination on account of race, newcomers, mm-hmm. and folks who are on receipt of, uh, in receipt of social assistance. Under the Human Rights Code, receipt of public assistance is a prohibited ground of discrimination for the purpose of housing. So what that means is that landlords cannot refuse to rent to you if you are receiving social assistance. But in many cases, we know that that's the case. Yeah. There's a huge stigma associated with receipt of social assistance, and landlords are very reticent to rent to folks who uh, are often reticent uh, to rent to folks on social assistance. CIRA was actually founded by a group of folks back in the late 80s who were very interested in the opportunities litigation and the law provided for making policy change and social change. And this was, if you think back to that time period, that was the time when some of the early charter litigation cases, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms um, that was passed in 1982, some of the constitutional challenges that had started to be filed after that were making their way up to the Supreme Court. So people in those sort of legal um, sector and and folks who saw opportunities for law to make social change were looking at that and, and thinking there may be something interesting here. So uh, the, some of the early um, policy work that we did was policy work through litigation. One of our very first cases was, it was a case that established landlords could not discriminate on the basis of social assistance. The legislation has uh, subsequently changed to sort of soften that and allow for on Some account of discrimination. Yeah, they can't discriminate on account of of the source of the income, but they can ask for proof of income. And then right. you often they find out the information that they're not supposed to be asking for by virtue of looking at somebody's bank statement, for example. Yeah, like I've had to give like an employment letter before that kind of thing. Exactly. Um, but never had to do that in a context where I was worried about. Yeah, and and we we still hear every day from people who are facing these issues. And the sort of, just to add an extra layer of complexity to this, we, for many years, did quite a bit of work to assist tenants who were being discriminated when they were accessing housing. And we were quite successful in advocating on their behalf to prospective landlords to say, you know, we think you may have been discriminatory here, or you may want to take a second look at this candidate. We encourage you to do so. We had some success in advocating on their behalf to get a a place to live. In the rental market that we have right now, it is very challenging to do that because the vacancy rate is so low, not just in Toronto, but across Ontario. So the opportunities to do that kind of advocacy work are really, really difficult. Right. And so easy. Like, like no, I had like 30 people look at this apartment. I just picked the person that I liked the best, not necessarily because this person was of a, you know, a, a racialized minority or something like that. How, how would you guys compare to a group like the, um, the Legal Aid Clinic that focuses in this area, the uh, Advocacy Center for Tenants Ontario, for example? You guys are not part of the legal aid system, and I know ACTO is facing some severe budget cuts as a result of the um, the cuts that the provincial government brought forward across legal aid. Do you guys work with them? Is that are there similarities? ACTO is a really important organization, and they have been been targeted by the current provincial government to receive large cut to their budget. They do a lot of things, but the the two the two sort of main pieces of work that that we pay attention to at CIRA that they do is um, they provide tenant duty counsel. So if you have an eviction hearing coming up and you are not represented and you qualify for legal aid, you can avail yourself of the services of tenant duty counsel, similar to if you were facing criminal charges and you weren't represented, you would have um, access to criminal duty counsel. 
And that's a really important service that they provide. Uh, We know that when it comes to the Landlord-Tenant Board, the vast majority of applications are filed by landlords, which means that they're eviction notices. So uh, I think the stats break down to about 80,000 applications before the LTB in any given year. 90% of them are from landlords. And about 60% of them, sorry, 66% of them overall are uh, eviction notices for renters who are in arrears, non-payment of rent. Um, which is a whole a whole other piece that relates to affordability, and I think is is really indicative of the desperate um, affordability issue that we're facing. The other piece of work that ACTO does um, and has worked with us on um, quite directly is is around sort of general advocacy, public awareness, and organizing around policy pieces. And and they have their budget cuts were not only more so than many of the other clinics. They also received specific direction to stop their work on policy advocacy and organization. So it's very clear that the provincial government is interested in making sure that that work doesn't continue to the same level that it has in the past. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like we are moment right now, Toronto's working on a long-term housing strategy. As a person who looks at housing as a human right uh, and is trying to incorporate that perspective in that plan, how far away from that are we currently in the city of Toronto and the province of Ontario? I think, I think we're quite far from looking at housing as a human right, provincially, certainly. The good news off the top is that all three levels of government right now are actively seized of the issue and the challenges that folks are having in finding housing. They're taking different approaches to it. At the provincial level, the biggest challenges or concerns that I have as somebody who approaches this from a human rights perspective is the primary concern or the primary way in which the provincial government is approaching addressing housing is by increasing supply. It's not that supply isn't an important consideration. There is a very valid series of questions and things we need to think about when it comes to supply. But if you take as your starting point that housing is a human right, then you have to be asking questions like, are we building the right supply? And how do we make sure that supply gets to the people who need it? If what we're trying to do is to create housing for people with families and lives, people who want to thrive in a community, then is the type of housing supply that we are incentivizing meeting that objective? And I think that you can take a look around the city and look at the, sorry to keep coming back to Toronto, but it's just so obvious here. When you take a look around Toronto, the GTA, elsewhere in Ontario, and you see the kind of construction that is happening, you see construction that is primarily oriented around folks who want to invest in housing, not people who want to live in housing. And so a human rights-based approach to housing would focus on creating places for people to live. The other piece of this is is making sure whatever supply is created actually does get into the hands of the people who need to live there. And so we know that there is a certain amount of the housing supply that is being frankly siphoned off by like Airbnb, ghost hotels, whatever you want to call it. And that threatens people's ability to meet their right to house. At the municipal level, uh, there has been, I would say, a significant take up of the concept of housing as a human right. Uh, at, in, in Toronto, I'm speaking about Toronto specifically. So back in January, City Council considered a motion to recognize the right to housing, and that motion did not pass by a, a margin of 14 to 11. That was quite disappointing for those of us who were working in the sector, but a number of us regrouped and tried to think about how we could take another, like the earliest opportunity to sort of course correct. 
And over the subsequent couple of months, spent some time chatting with folks on the Planning and Housing Committee, uh, the Deputy Mayor who is leading the development of Toronto's 10-year housing plan, folks on the city staff side uh, who are working on the plan. And um, we had some really good conversations. And in April 2019, Leilani Farha, who is the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Housing and a former Executive Director of CIRA, uh, came to Toronto and met with a number of folks on City Council, a number of um, folks at the staff level, and made a presentation to the Planning and Housing Committee of City Council about the importance of taking a rights-based approach to housing. And at that meeting, uh, that was April 30th, the Planning and Housing Committee tabled a motion to consider a rights-based approach in the development of its housing plan. And that motion was adopted unanimously and went to city council two weeks later and was adopted unanimously there. And since that time, uh, the city has been consulting about the right to housing. They've been speaking with us and others who have been working under the banner of a right to housing campaign in Toronto. A number of us sit on the external advisory committee of the for the development of the 10-year housing plan. And we expect that there will be a significant rights-based approach to the plan. And, and in fact, the deputy mayor just last week tweeted about the fact that they would be taking a rights-based approach to the plan. So this is really exciting news. And, and I would say quite a significant turnaround from January, where city council was quite uncomfortable with that idea. So I'm really encouraged by what's going on. I think, of course, we want to see the details of what's in the plan. And if everything goes as we're expecting, uh, Toronto will be the first municipality in Canada that would have a rights-based housing plan, uh, which is really exciting. But it also means that there's a lot of work to do to figure out what do human rights mean? How do you, what does that mean at the level of policy? How do you translate these ideas? I don't want to be a downer, but I feel like just to reinforce how important it is that that human rights lens gets taken and, and all of the potential for progress that exists in this at the city of Toronto level moves forward. I think it's useful just to go back to some of the quite sobering statistics that the city of Toronto put out in their housing analysis in January of this year. So you take a step up from uh, homeless and you sort of move into supportive housing where you're um, offering services around people who are in housing. So people who have very high needs, not only housing, but sort of uh, other similar concerns that need to be uh, attended to. And you're looking at wait lists right now, five to seven years for that. They're supposed to grow by another 50% by 2041. Same thing with social housing. So that would be rent geared to income housing. Um, there's a crisis in the lack of affordable housing. So now we're getting into sort of market rent and what's affordable. So a core housing need is defined by the, the federal government as you're spending more than 30% of your income on housing. The number of households in core housing need in Toronto is supposed to grow at twice the rate to 2041 uh, as it's been growing over the last 12 years. So that's uh, striking. Uh, and this report basically concludes that if there isn't significant government intervention, and, and that's significant intervention across the entire housing continuum, then we're going to see consequential challenges for equity, cohesion, and economic prosperity in the city. So like literally this problem has the potential to like to just rip our society apart if, if not dealt with. And so uh, one area of government we haven't talked about yet, and I want to touch on briefly, is the federal government. They have implemented a 10-year national housing strategy, and we're about two years into it right now, and they've uh, made some pretty big promises. So they've promised to cut chronic homelessness by 10%, remove 530,000 families from housing need. And for comparison, there are about 250,000 families in need in Toronto just alone right now. So that's like whether that is an appropriate target is a, is, is a good question. Alexi, you did a little bit of looking at what role the feds play in this area. And I'm curious what we think the role the federal government is in solving some of these challenges. I know that they have taken a human rights approach in their enabling legislation, but they stopped short of 
making it legally enforceable for the individual. Yeah, and I think I think that that's a really important point because because what we are not talking about is providing people with the ability to sue the government because they they're not able to get the apartment that they want. Maybe you should back up a step. When we're talking about the right to housing, at a very general level, uh, there's a few sort of key elements to the right to housing. We're talking about housing that's affordable, uh, where folks have security of tenure, housing that's accessible, habitable, that it has a location that puts it close to services and facilities and infrastructure that folks need, and that there is an element of cultural adequacy in there as well. So some of that is quite subjective to the individual circumstance as it should be. And that's what human rights is is about. When we talk about a human rights approach to housing plan or policy, we're talking about an approach that puts a housing rights lens on decision making. So it means that when there is a decision about to be made, whether it's a legislative decision or at you know, the level of an individual project, Similar to the way in which governments have approached gender-based decision-making or gender-based analysis, you put that housing lens on, housing rights lens on the decision. And so just to use a really crude example, at the level of the individual project, what we often see is community meetings where local residents come out and object to certain type of housing development in the neighborhood, whether it's... Giant condo. Exactly. any Shelter. Yeah. All of the above. And often what happens is because those are the loudest voices in the room, that can be a larger factor in the decision making than it otherwise would be if you took a rights-based approach to that making that decision. So a rights-based approach to making that decision would say, I hear your concerns, local homeowners. However, we have folks who need a roof over their head. And, and that is actually more important than things like concerns about property value or the character of the neighborhood, et cetera. When we look at what, what the national housing strategy has done, just coming back to your question, there's a couple of things that the national housing uh, strategy has done that are really important from a rights-based perspective. First of all, it recognizes the right to housing, which is a, is, is a really important first step. Step one. It establishes a couple of important oversight and accountability mechanisms. It establishes a federal housing advocate and a national housing council. So the National Housing Council is designed to provide advice to the government about the progress and effectiveness of the national housing strategy. It has the ability to conduct hearings on systemic issues, and members of the council are selected from a variety, a cross-section of Canadian society. It's, they're meant to be folks who have lived experience. They're meant to be human rights experts. They're meant, meant to be representative of vulnerable groups. The hearings around systemic issues, this is, this is the accountability piece where we're, to your point earlier, this is not about creating a justiciable right where I, as an individual, can go to the government and demand a thing. This is about having a process where a group of individuals or a systemic issue can be brought forward to a body that is tasked with thinking about it, investigating it, making recommendations, and the government has to respond. So there is a requirement in the legislation for the minister responsible to respond to that. So it's more of a policy accountability piece than a legal responsibility to an individual. Yeah, but still helpful. And especially in the context where the federal government has the best ability of any level of government to marshal the large amounts of money needed to, to your point earlier, solve or you know really make progress on some of these uh, sort of housing issues. I would agree with Alyssa for sure that the way the strategy rolls out, it's it's not just sort of turning the taps on and off on funding the way that people usually think of a national strategy, especially in housing. There are a lot of these pieces that show that the federal government seems to be really serious about 
actually getting back into the game of housing and not just, you know, playing with the transfers that it, it gives to the provinces, for example. Uh, and so Alyssa's talked about some of those, which, which is really, really important. Uh, they're also supporting organizations on the ground. There's a whole research stream to the national strategy, which is great news. Um, so hopefully we'll be getting dividends from that over the long term as we figure out how to solve these problems. On the money side, though, to just to go back to that, because uh, I mean, it is a, it's very important when when their government is claiming that they're going to create sort of you know four times as many new units as have been created in the past. There is a lot of money on the homelessness side for sure, and that's great. Uh, and they've set a target for uh, addressing chronic homelessness, which again is really important. It's very difficult from a lack of detail in the plan to know to actually be able to to judge how well the various pieces of their plan are going to um, address chronic homelessness and. Federal strategies, of course, are very difficult to to evaluate in that way already because many of them, including this one, make large assumptions about uh, funding that's also going to come from the provinces or from the local municipalities to sort of match the money that they're putting forward. And so that's, I think, where this housing plan has probably been oversold. Uh, and the Parliamentary Budget Office did an analysis in June of this year um, looking at the various streams of funding and that CMHC stream, the Canada Mortgage Housing Corporation stream. Uh, for actually building new units, they found that it's only going to increase by about 15% compared to the 10-year historical average. So a lot of good things in this plan uh, when it comes to actually federal dollars flowing into new housing. We're not talking about anything close to like a doubling or a quadrupling of money. A lot of it is uh, the government hoping that they're going to leverage money at the provincial level and at the municipal level, and, and that's going to help. And so the PBO concludes that they basically say it's not clear the national housing strategy will reduce the prevalence of housing need relative to 2017 levels. So that's not great uh, as a conclusion of a PBO report. <laughs> Did the PBO actually finish the report by saying, not great? <laughs> <laughs> they did not. It's uh, they, they, got to, they got some new writers in PBO and they're... Uh... That's right. They're very blunt people. <laughs> and I mean, unfortunately, like it, the, the, the frustrating thing about all this is if we if we had a magic wand, we could go back to 1994 when the federal liberals at the time froze social housing spending and, and undo that terrible decision. Uh, we would have 45,000 more social housing units in Toronto today. And that's half of the current wait list. So, I mean, there's, there were decisions that were made decades ago that were very short-sighted uh, and that we are now paying for in spades. And we are trying to catch up with a problem that we ourselves allowed our governments to neglect for way too long. And that, I think, is a really important thing to keep in mind. We talked about some of the challenges um, and also some of the work that is happening to further rights-based approach in housing. So Alyssa, from the perspective of someone advocating, what are some things that you would emphasize to people who are interested in housing policy for the future? If, if I'm a person that says, I really want to make sure that where I'm living, this is reflected. What are some things that I can do? And what are some things that are important for me to understand? That's a great question. I think everything starts from a fundamental understanding and agreement with the idea that housing is a human right. And that has to be the framing for all of the policy decisions and the considerations that we have on this. It's a human right because having a home is so central to living a life of dignity when it comes down to it. And it is a, it's a gateway right, an enabling right for so many other rights. We know that we don't have good health outcomes or employment outcomes or life outcomes in the absence of housing. And there's lots of data out there to talk about what sort of health outcomes being homeless has on, on folks. 
if I take a bigger picture and sort of more esoteric view of, of what where we're at in housing, I can't think of a better example of a market failure, like a classic economic market failure. And I mean, we could talk for hours about sort of how we got to here and, and the impact of, you know, certainly financialization in recent years um, and the hyper commodification of housing uh, and the, you know, even the complex financial derivatives that have been created to enable folks to make a significant amount of money off of housing, which when it comes down to it is a place where somebody should live uh, and live a life of dignity. That is why we have housing. If food prices increased the amount that housing prices have, I think we would see a significant amount of action. When cell phone prices increase and when Rogers increases their cell phone contracts by $5 a month, People are up in arms. The Prime Minister of Canada and the leader of the NDP will come out and declarative statements that they will intervene. Exactly. And so I, I often think about, you know, why why do we take such drastic and dramatic action on things that are not human rights? And here we have this, I would say, five alarm fire on our hands when it comes to housing, which is, you know, just getting back to the affordability piece, the reason why all governments are talking about affordability, it's because of housing. It's the it's the biggest cost that people have. Right now, the average cost of an apartment in Toronto is $2,250 uh, for a one-bedroom apartment. So there's a huge amount of opportunity for folks to profit off of this. The reason why we are getting called at CIRA by folks who are facing eviction is that there's a huge incentive for landlords to get people out of their units because as soon as the unit is empty, they can raise rent to market value, which you know could mean going from if you have a long-term tenant having somebody pay $700 a month rent to 2250 a month rent. So the opportunity to profit in the current context is just so significant and the lack of action uh, just getting back to my earlier point it's it's just such a such an obvious example of market failure that we wouldn't allow to have happen in so many other places. Like, I think we need to take it seriously as the very serious... I, I see this as one of the most significant human rights challenges of our time. One thing that gives me hope in this particular issue is that there are multitude of ways for people to act locally and also, you know, make it known to your decision makers, the kind of lens they would have. So, I mean, Lisa, you've mentioned a few times you're working with the city of Toronto on their 10-year housing plan that has a human rights lens, making it known to your city councilor that this is an issue that you would like them to vote positively on if you're in the city of Toronto, um, holding the federal government to account and letting your MP know that this is an area that folks are paying attention to. I think that kind of action is really helpful. But I mean, there's also just stuff in your own community, like when those zoning meetings happen and showing up. Certainly, the people who are worried about their property values are showing up to those kinds of meetings and making their case known. I always remember in education, we dealt with an issue where it was perennially known that residents in a certain area of the city that shall not be named did not want a childcare center going into their neighborhood, despite the fact that they that we knew that there was a huge childcare need there uh, because it was sort of a character of the neighborhood issue. But those people showed up. And so when you see those kinds of things, and if you care about housing as a human rights, showing up to those things and voicing those concerns, I think is a way that individuals can make a, like a direct impact. Even if it's something as simple like going to your condo meetings. like I think that's absolutely right. And I would like to see across the province and across the country an approach that turns nimbyism on its head. And I've heard of campaigns in the States called Neighbors for Neighbors. I think it's called uh, even Yimby campaigns. So yes, in my backyard, making space for folks 
uh, recognizing that the the fact that you live in a neighborhood and got there before others doesn't mean that you can prevent or should prevent others from being in that uh, neighborhood. So I think that there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done to change the discussion around housing. And thank you very much for the Right to Housing campaign plug. I will just take a moment to let folks know that uh, if you are in the city of Toronto and do want to show your support for the right to housing and uh, make sure your counselor knows that this is important, you can visit our website and sign up as a supporter. We currently have 189 organizational and individual supporters listed on the website. We've got the Co-op Housing Federation of Canada. We've got the YMCA of Toronto. And most recently, we have the Canadian Medical Association who have come on recognizing that housing is a human right and, uh, and ought to be treated as such. We also have a Twitter account, so you can follow us on Twitter at R2HTO. And you can also find uh, Sierra on Twitter at uh, Sierra Ontario. So listeners, you're probably listening on a phone. Pause the podcast right now. Go to that website. Sign up as a supporter. And uh, if you want to learn more about the financialization of the housing sector and also uh, the human rights lens, I would recommend the documentary Push, which I saw this year, which was fabulous uh, joining of those two concepts uh, and made me think about financialization in a way that I hadn't before when it comes to the housing market. Awesome. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. But Alyssa, thank you so much for coming on Ontario Loud. It's been a pleasure to see you again and have you and lend your expertise to this like super important issue. Thank you so much. This has been really great. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. I want to thank Alyssa so much for coming on the pod. We loved having her. And really, go to righttohousingto.ca and sign up as a supporter. If you live in Toronto, it is a real way you can make a difference by letting your city councillor know you're paying attention to this. And I know you are millennial policy wonks who are gog at the housing market. Ontario Loud is hosted by Sam Andry, Alexi White, and myself, Chris Martin. Philip Askew is our recording engineer, and Aisha Anwar and Harmon Mundy do our comms and our research. Ontario Loud is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit and many nations. We honor and respect the treaties that are still alive today, and recognize the Indigenous people across Canada must still fight for their rights in this settler colonial society. Listeners, sad but important announcement. Kate Hammer has had to leave the pod to pursue some new opportunities that don't allow her to pod anymore. If you already miss her, you're just like us, but we wish her all the best. And Kate, you are welcome back on the pod anytime. Um, Less sad announcement. We will be having Pat Sorbara, a famed Liberal Party strategist, architect of several uh, major electoral victories in the province of Ontario on the next pod to talk about her book. Let him howl. It'll be a really exciting discussion. I'm looking forward to it. And have a good night, everyone.